So when my son was little, he loved an animated TV series called Little Bear. <laughs> Given that he's the same age as Drew and the chuckling in the front row, I'm thinking that you might have watched Little Bear too. So Little Bear lived in the woods with his family. It's a pretty conventional bear family, mom, dad. And Little Bear had friends who he got into adventures with. And these little friends were creatively named Duck, Hen, and Owl. William's favorite episode was Opposite Day. On that day, Little Bear woke up literally on the wrong side, actually the wrong end of the bed. He had his feet on the pillow and his head at the foot of the bed. And so Little Bear proceeded to do everything that day the opposite of the way it should be. Instead of saying good morning to his mother, he said, good night, Mom. He walked backwards. And when given a piping, steaming bowl of oatmeal, he said, oh, my cereal is cold. And you can imagine that a four-year-old would find this hilarious. As a matter of fact, we had a lot of fun imitating that story, and uh, we had our own version of Opposite Day, which actually one day included me uh, driving down our street backwards. Please don't tell anyone that I did that. <laughs> which only goes to prove that when you're trying to entertain, entertain a four-year-old, you will do anything. <laughs> we did have a lot of fun, and it struck me as I read this text that this text is kind of the uh, first century version of Opposite Day. One commentator actually called this text a pastoral puzzle. The game of opposites that Jesus is playing here is, well, you've seen the truth and the light and the way, my way, but you still don't get it. And when he speaks of this generation, it sounds a bit to us when we talk about the younger generation or the millennials. The older generation is always talking about the younger generation. That's not what he's doing here, though. He's talking about the nation of Israel and the people of Israel who couldn't recognize what was right in front of their eyes. They couldn't recognize this way of life that Jesus was preaching, one of acceptance for all people and welcome to the stranger and unconditional love. They just couldn't get their heads around that. It's very important to know what was going on at the time of the story, to kind of put it in its place. John the Baptist was now in prison, and he sent word to the disciples that he wanted to find out for sure, is Jesus the real deal? Is Jesus the promised Messiah? Is he the one that will bring peace to the world? And so Jesus' game of opposite day faced with this question goes like this. You hear happy music, but you don't dance. You hear sad music, but you don't cry. John the Baptist eats a really weird diet, and you say he's possessed by a demon. I eat like all the rest of you. I even eat and drink wine with you, and then you say I'm a glutton and a drunk. Which is it? Which is it, folks, is his question. This flipping of understanding and expectations and interpretations is probably very familiar to you. It's typical for this text. It's typical for the way Jesus communicated all the time. And it's often confusing for all of us who hear the story. But then this text stops and pivots, and it gets simple 
and direct. And there's a word that you can feel almost wash over you. Come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will give you rest. Now, as I said earlier, rest means lots of different things. We have our high schoolers at Camp Akita, and these are kids who are growing up in a world that is so much more complicated than the world that I grew up in, or most of us did. It's a world of everything digital and social media and Twitter and Twitter and Twitter or whatever it is, and you know uh, Instagram and all kinds of other things. And what must it mean for these kids? And never mind the pressures of school and sports and all those uh, special activities that you have to do to build a good res resume, to go to college so you can have a good life, all those things that kids get piled on them. What must it be like for those kids in the midst of that to go to Camp Akita and get quiet and stare at the lake? They're learning about rest. When I was doing my uh, clinical pastoral training at Children's Hospital, I had actually many on-call shifts that were difficult, but one was particularly heartbreaking. Members of the trauma team, and the chaplain was always on the trauma team, we had all been up all night with several very sad situations, and so the shift finally ended, as it always does, and it was time to go home. I remember dropping into bed with not one breath of energy left. And the next day I said to my supervisor, you know, it's remarkable what a good night's sleep will do for you. And she said these words which I will never forget, and I've repeated them to others in struggling and difficult situations. Sometimes a good night's sleep is the best hedge against despair. So much of our coping ability is lost when we're tired. We lose our perspective. Everything seems bigger than life. It's difficult to envision a future that might be different. It is easy to slip into despair. We lose our sense of humor. We lose our ability to laugh at each other and at ourselves. With exhaustion, we lose our problem-solving capabilities. Certainly Jesus, who was always followed by the crowds, always under pressure to perform a miracle or heal somebody, he understood what that heavy blanket of fatigue can feel like. At the same time, he was talking about much more than getting a nap or a good night's sleep or a vacation. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I had brunch yesterday with some friends and their young children. We got to talking about what's restful for us. For one spouse, rest is a good workout. She said that it may not be physically restful, but it really recharges her and brings her back to life and gives her new energy and even new perspective. The other spouse is completely different. He works in computers, and so for him, a restful day is getting to do his own thing for himself, his own self. 
on the computer without the pressure of clients and projects. <clears throat> he just does his own thing, and he finds that restful. For fun, I asked their oldest daughter, who's just finished the first grade, how she likes to rest. She thought about it very carefully, and she said, I like to pull my blanket up onto my lap over my legs and watch TV. She is my kind of girl. Now, I, I need to say here that I'm very aware this is a very privileged perspective on rest, right? We are privileged North Americans. If you are a young girl in sub-Saharan Africa, in a place like Ethiopia or Uganda or Kenya, your job is to walk 10 miles round trip every day with your mother to get clean water for your family. And when you bring it back, you have a 40-pound vessel balanced on your head. We don't know about tired. On the news just this morning, I heard a story about how Iraqi forces have finally virtually retaken the city of Mosul from ISIS. Now, if you've seen the pictures on television, you know that this city is annihilated. Most of the country is. It's just rubble. So imagine people coming out from under the rubble of their homes, people who have been hiding for months. They are tired. They are hungry. They have been in despair, and suddenly they're getting a break from that. Of course, you don't have to go all the way across the world. There are children in our own community who didn't sleep last night because their bellies were empty, they hadn't eaten, or because there's so much domestic violence in their household that they don't dare go to sleep because it doesn't feel safe. So rest means very different things. Theologian Lance Pape writes beautifully about this passage. He says, what Jesus offers is not freedom from work, but freedom from onerous labor. Soul-sick weariness, weariness is not the inevitable consequence of all work, but rather of work to which we are unsuited, motivated by fear, performed in the face of futility. There is also weariness that comes from having nothing at all to do. So you know already that this idea of rest is formalized in the Bible as Sabbath, in Hebrew Shabbat. It was at the time a pretty revolutionary idea that human beings and animals and livestock would have a day liberated from work, a day not required to answer the commands of another. There was a senator from Connecticut, retired now, uh, Joe Lieberman, who wrote a whole book about rest. It's called The Gift of Rest. It was given to me by a very special couple in this congregation. Lieberman is Jewish. He takes observance of the Sabbath very, very seriously. From sundown on Friday to nightfall on Saturday, I just learned there's a difference between sundown and nightfall. Nightfall's a little later. He and his family follow the traditions of Sabbath, so they don't cook or shop 
or engage in any business. They don't ride in cars during that 24-hour-plus period. They don't go on the internet. They don't post on social media. They don't do any of those things. Instead, they spend time with their family, and they spend time with God. It is observed in this way because in the Bible stories of creation, God worked for six days and rested on the seventh. And then later on in the Bible stories, God commands God's people to respect the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so the early Jewish people understood that we don't just need rest for our bodies, we need rest for our spirits, for our minds. Exactly what Jesus promises when he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Now, you know, I could spend the whole summer talking about Sabbath, and you might listen a little bit, and then you would be busy again, and that's how life works. Uh, however, I do want to share with you just briefly this morning what Lieberman says about Sabbath, that it's not an all-or-nothing proposition. You know, I'm not asking you to wear yourself out trying to do Sabbath better than you do it already. Don't make another to-do list out of this. However, he does offer a list of what he calls simple beginnings. The first one, take a nap. I can't tell you how many people after 9.15 came up to me afterwards and said, thank you for blessing my nap. <laughs> the second one is set aside some particularly relaxing or enjoyable reading. Not reading to improve yourself, not reading to you know, get better on your job, not reading to do better whatever it is that you do, reading that you can enjoy and really settle into. Try not wearing a watch or keeping an eye on the time. Lieberman says your main responsibility on this day is to rest and thereby to please and honor God and not other people. Make some time for quiet and intimacy with your partner. Consider turning off the TV and the computer, the phone. If you can't do that for 24 hours, I get that. I can't either. But maybe for an hour. Go out of your way to enjoy nature. I think this one is particularly good for our time in this country. Elevate your conversation. Discuss ideas. Discuss ideas rather than people or problems or politics. So as you can see, as Senator Lieberman describes it, it's much more than rest. And it's intentional. It's not just what happens when you go home and plop on the couch. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know, there's some intentionality to this. It is renewing of the whole person, deep, deep rest in the soul. And it is holy and sacred. The uh, marvelous theologian and writer Frederick Buechner has written about Sabbath, and I'm just going to share the whole, the whole two paragraphs with you because I couldn't possibly leave any of it out. I think it's marvelous. It spoke to me so powerfully. And so here are these words from Frederick Buechner about Sabbath. You think of God resting after the creation was finally all created. You think of the deep hush of it, like the hush between breakers at the beach. 
You think of the new creation itself resting, the gray squirrel ceasing to twitch and chatter, the kingfisher settling down on a branch by the pond, the couple standing still in the garden. You think of God blessing this one day of the seven and hallowing it and making it holy. The room is quiet. You're not feeling tired enough to sleep or energetic enough to go out. For the moment, there is nowhere else you'd rather go, no one else you'd rather be. You feel at home in your own body. You feel at peace in your own mind. For no particular reason, you let the palms of your hands come together and close your eyes. And sometimes it is only when you happen to taste a crumb of it that you dimly realize what it is that you're so hungry for, you can hardly bear it. We are all so hungry. I know that most of you, if not all of you, are aware of the Prayers and Squares ministry we have here at First Community Church. A group of women make prayer quilts. They're about the most creative, extraordinary people you'll meet. And they sew these quilts for people who are in need of comfort and prayer and support. And they pray as they're doing it. All the quilters will tell you that it's the prayer that is what it's about, not the quilt itself. So yesterday, I delivered a quilt to Jess Casamassimo, who's in the hospital. Jess is a child of this church. He's 26. He is a dear, kind, smart, funny kid who's a 26-year-old man. <laughs> Uh, I've known him since he was three. A couple of weeks ago, Jess got pneumonia. He really didn't think too much of it. He thought he had a flu bug that just kept hanging on and couldn't quite kick it. He's a really hard worker, so he just kept working and kept at it, and he was pretty exhausted, but he kept at it and at it, and as it turns out, he had pneumonia. And the infection got into his bloodstream and invaded the valves of his heart. Fortunately, Jess's dad took him to the ER. Had he not done that, it's almost for sure that Jess would have died. You can't have that kind of bacteria streaming through your body and survive it without attention. Jess's life has not been easy. He came here as a young immigrant from Vietnam. He had many physical and emotional issues. So life hasn't always been easy for him. He was really isolated in the hospital, isolated literally because of the germs. His family and people who visit have to have the whole, you know, cape and gloves and everything on to see him. And then his quilt arrived. 
And I have to tell you, it was so moving watching Jess touch this quilt. I think he really didn't know what to expect. And he, for the longest time, didn't say anything and just stroked this fabric. And he kept saying, it's so soft. And the colors are so beautiful. And then he would take each knot, and many of you signed the card for him and, and tied those knots last Sunday. And he would touched every single knot and looked at me and said, Deb, you mean every person who made these knots said a prayer? Like, yeah, Jess. And there was something about the, the tactile. He just kept touching it and touching it and touching it. And then he picked up the card and he spent these long, long moments looking at the list of people. You! Who signed and prayed. And he said, Deb, I don't even know most of these people. And I, I'm like, I know. But they know you, and they know you need care and comfort and the power of their prayers to carry you through this experience. The doctors and the antibiotics are healing Jess's body. The hospital is giving him a safe place to rest and to heal. But I saw with my own eyes that it is that quilt and the prayers it represents and the love and care of both people he knows and complete strangers, those are the things that are bringing the rest to Jess's soul. And the kind of calm that is going to enable him to survive another month in isolation and then to rebuild again. Jess is now experiencing that deep peace that we read about in the book of Philippians, the deep peace that passes all understanding. The message paraphrase it this way, paraphrases it this way. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. And I'm going to tell you that's exactly what happened for Jess. Since this illness, he has a whole new appreciation of the people who love and care about him. And that is what is healing his spirit. That it is what is providing him hope. That is what is renewing him in ways that no antibiotic ever could. And that is what is resurrecting his life. As I watched Jess touch his quilt, I felt like I was really seeing what it looks like to be the people of God. What it really looks like to align ourselves with the man named Jesus, who made this outrageous claim that my yoke is easy and my burden is light and who said to us, come, and I will give you rest. May all of you come to know this deep peace. May it be what you most long for and hunger for. And may it be so in your life. Amen.